You're watching The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Today, revelation after revelation from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The Arizona House Speaker, the Georgia Secretary of State, his top deputy, all of them, conservative Republicans, all of them giving new insights into the multi-layered Trump intimidation campaign to subvert the 2020 election. I want to start the show with CNN's Caitlin Collins. And Caitlin, you're hearing from people in Donald Trump's circle. What are you, what are you hearing from them? Well, Jake, that call that was on full display today during this hearing was, of course, the hour-long phone call that then-President Trump had in January with these election officials in the state of Georgia, mainly the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who you heard from today. And I'm told that despite what you saw today, which was the committee playing clips of that call with claims from Trump saying thousands of ballots had been shredded or thousands of dead people had voted and then flashing to Raffensperger saying that's not true. We checked that out. That's also not true. Trump has continued to defend that call. He has said it was a perfect call. He has told people he assumed it was being recorded. There were attorneys on the line as they were in this hour-long call where he alternated between asking for Raffensperger to find these votes, thinly veiled threatening them when it came to certain pushback on claims he was making. And despite the fact that you heard from them talking about the harassment that not just they faced, but also their families faced, and you heard from Raffensperger saying his daughter-in-law was one of those people, That is, despite that, Trump has continued to defend this call and stand up for it and say he believed it was the right call, it was a perfect call, and whatnot. And, Jake, that's notable given you see this testimony that's being used today from Republican officials who said they supported Trump when it came to the election, but obviously not in his election lies. One other thing to note, Jake, that was incredibly notable from the end of that testimony was what Liz Cheney said as she was in her closing remarks, seeming to look directly into the camera and speak to the former White House counsel for Trump, which is Pat Cipollone. He has done an informal sit-down with the January 6th committee, but he has not come out and formally testified. She looked at the camera and said that they believe that the American people deserve to hear from him, that he needs to testify, and said that she is working to secure his testimony. That seemed to imply that there has been some kind of breakdown behind the scenes and trying to get him to come testify. And obviously his testimony would be critical, Jake. He was there on January 6th. He threatened to quit for some of the moves that Trump had threatened to carry out when it came to the Justice Department. And so that is going to be a point of concern going forward for whether or not this committee actually gets Pat Cipollone's testimony. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Uh, Let's talk about all this with my panel. But let me start with what Caitlin just referred to, uh, the vice chair of the committee, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, uh, talking directly to former Trump White House counsel, almost, uh, Pat Cipollone, uh, about the fact that she feels the American people deserve to hear from him. To date, more than 30 witnesses called before this committee have not done what you've done, but have invoked their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Roger Stone took the fifth. General Michael Flynn took the fifth. John Eastman took the fifth. Others, like Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro, simply refused to comply with lawful subpoenas, and they have been indicted. Mark Meadows has hidden behind President Trump's claims of executive privilege and immunity from subpoenas. And yet, uh, Cheney said, uh, it was time for Pat Cipollone to come forward. So many witnesses have talked about how he was trying to keep Trump and his gang from the lawless, illegal, potentially unconstitutional, certainly, uh, activities, uh, and he should come forward and talk to the, tell the American people what happened. Liz Cheney doesn't say anything by accident. That was a complete 
call out of Pat Cipollone, who my sources have been telling me for months was a critical witness and who I believe the committee thought for a long time was going to show up Mm. and cooperate. So something happened along the way in the last couple of weeks that changed that. And she was going public. She didn't have to do that today at this hearing. She wanted to be on the record saying that this one hid behind this and this one, uh, you know, took the fifth. Pat Cipollone, where are you? And there's certainly an argument to be made that that Pat Cipollone's conversations with President Trump could be covered by executive privilege, right? Yes, yes, though he is the White House lawyer. He's the institution's lawyer, not the president's lawyer. Uh, Now, there are certain conversations you're having about certain things, just like Mark Meadows. The committee has not said Mark Meadows has no privilege. They've just said you don't have blanket privilege, and you do not have a privilege if you are discussing a criminal act. There's no such privilege. You can't hide criminality. The committee is trying to build a pyramid of intent and corruption of Trump. And so what did they show today? Uh, Three different campaign lawyers said, we're out of this. This is no good. Trump campaign. Trump campaign lawyer saying, nope, we're done. We're done. What you're doing now is illegal. We're done. And they passed it off on the private lawyers. They have shown some of Pat Cipollone's deputies throughout the testimony saying we think this is crazy. Other lawyers in the in the White House counsel's office. Uh, Today, they had Mark Meadows, chief of staff, saying she was in a meeting where the White House counsel's office said, this is illegal, you cannot do this. This they, fraudulent state right. of election. They want Cipollone so that they can look the camera in the eye and say, Donald Trump was told by everybody, his attorney general, the top guy. They want to say his White House counsel, the top guy, his campaign manager, the top guy, the, White, the, the campaign counsel's office, the lawyers there. And so they want to make the case Donald Trump was so determined to keep going after being told wrong, illegal, immoral, unconstitutional, that he got Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, John Eastman to keep going on this rogue operation after being told by all the people who know the law, no. No, absolutely. And look, this is a question of whether or not Pat Cipollone, who, as you were saying, Jamie, clearly has had a lot to talk to, whether it was informally or not, a lot to talk to the, uh, the committee about. He knows so much. And we, uh, we already heard some testimony today talking about what he said. But it goes to the question, you said it's a pyramid of intent. You could just avoid the pyramid and just knock it off with one interview, whether it is on tape or public, with Pat Cipollone asking point blank, and did of, you ask, did you ask, or did you tell the president no go? And some of these other lawyers that we've heard from over the last few days have basically given a roadmap of how you can, how you can testify without necessarily divulging everything that the former mm-hmm. president said to you. But there were a lot of other conversations happening with John Eastman, with the outside lawyers that paint a picture of what was going on here. And he could certainly testify to that. But I think the fact that he won't is just another sign that a lot of these people, they think this is all crazy, but this is also about self-preservation. Nobody wants to throw themselves under the bus, even at this stage, because they all still have to work in this town. They also still have to find uh, things to do in the Republican establishment. And it's hard to do that when you've testified effectively against Trump in this kind of setting. And especially after you just heard hours and hours of testimony by uh, election officials and Republican officials who just talked about the mob that uh, supports Donald Trump that was uh, unleashed uh, upon them and their families. Uh, That's intimidating. And there's, as you noted earlier, Abby, that's that's the reason they do it. We're joined now by the select committee member who played the lead role in today's hearing, uh, Democratic Congressman uh, Adam Schiff of California. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. So your panel laid out some, some pretty stunning evidence today. 
um, from stalwart conservative Republicans, in addition to the, to the election workers. In your view, how much, if any, of what we heard today reaches a threshold of actual criminality? Well, you know, again, look, I, uh, I've said for some time that I agreed with uh, David Carter, the federal judge in California, that this plot to overturn the election uh, likely violated multiple uh, federal laws. Now, it's one thing to say there's enough evidence to begin an investigation. Uh, it's another thing to say, is there proof uh, beyond a reasonable doubt? And that latter judgment uh, is going to be one for the Department of Justice to make. But I do think that these issues have to be investigated by the department. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, obviously those who broke into the Capitol are under investigation and prosecution. Uh, but the plot went beyond those that were uh, in the Capitol that day. Uh, and I do think those allegations merit investigation by the department. Today, we heard a lot about this scheme to have states submit slates of fraudulent electors. And I suppose the, the hope was that Vice President Pence or somehow the confusion uh, would allow Pence or the Congress to throw this back to the, <clears throat> to the states and uh, thus allowing Trump to hold on to power. We finally heard of Donald Trump's involvement in the scheme, direct involvement, and we heard this from the Republican National Committee Chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel. She testified about that call in which Donald Trump was involved. I want to play that for our viewers. He turned the call over to Mr. Eastman, who then proceeded to talk about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather these contingent electors in case any of the legal challenges um, that were ongoing changed the result of any of the dates. I think more just helping them reach out and, and assemble them. But the, my understanding is the campaign did take the lead and we just were helping them in that, in that role. What is the significance, if any, of the fact that Trump initiated that call with the RNC chair? Well, look, you know, we, he was initiating that call uh, to give the imprimatur of his support. Uh, his weight behind uh, what was being asked of this head of the Republican National Committee. Uh, likewise, this is why he's on the call with Rudy Giuliani to the Arizona Speaker of the House of Representatives, because this is Donald Trump's request that the Speaker of the House, a fellow Republican, uh, in the absence of any proof, uh, call the legislature back into session, decertify the Biden electors, and appoint uh, some illegitimate electors for Donald Trump. Uh, and, you know, likewise, here he is meeting with his own attorney general, being told that uh, these claims he is making are BS, but he's out there continuing to make these fraud claims that underlay the whole scheme. Uh, so, look, this was his plot. Uh, and, uh, and I think we demonstrated today uh, his key involvement at different points along the way. Is that illegal? Is it a crime to submit fraudulent slates of electors? Well, this will be ultimately up for the Justice Department to decide. Um, our job is really to expose what went on, uh, to prescribe legislative remedies, to protect the country going forward. But those kind of calls will have to be made. I understand, by the, the, Department de of I understand the decision to prosecute is up to the Department of Justice. But you used to work in the U.S. Attorney's Office in California. You're a former assistant U.S. Attorney. You have an idea of what laws might be involved without saying whether or not somebody should be prosecuted. Is that potentially a crime? I'm not a lawyer. Help me out here. 
Well, look, I, I think the, the broader uh, plot to overturn the election, of which this was a part, um, likely violated multiple federal laws, as Judge Carter held. Uh, and I think it needs to be investigated, not just by the Congress, but by the Justice Department. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm not prepared to reach a conclusion about what the Justice Department uh, ought to do in terms of whether they approve beyond a reasonable doubt of all the elements of a particular crime. But I do think it needs to be investigated, not just by the Congress. The vice chair of your committee, Liz Cheney, gave a, a rare public request, it seemed, for White House counsel Pat Cipollone, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone, to testify. What's your understanding about why he has not yet agreed to testify? And, and do you feel like ultimately we will hear from him, whether it's in taped, recorded testimony or, or live? Look, I, I hope he comes forward. Uh, whether he ultimately will, uh, I don't know. Uh, people are showing courage to do so. Uh, we had several courageous people come before uh, the committee today, all of them uh, in terms of the Secretary of State, the Speaker from Arizona, Gabe Sterling. You know, they're members of the President's party. Uh, two of them talked about how they supported the President. One of them was out there campaigning for the President. Um, and they've had the courage to stand up and do what's right and fulfill their their duty as public servants. Um, whether Mr. Cipollone will feel, you know, that same, um, you know, patriotic duty uh, will be up to him and it will be up to the committee how to respond if he doesn't. What reasons are uh, Cipollone or his attorneys or his representatives giving for not testifying? Uh, you know, that I really can't say. It was gut-wrenching listening to the two um, women, the election officials, talk about the threats against them, emotional testimony from Shea Moss. The Arizona speaker talked about the guns, the loudspeakers, the insane allegations against him, sexualized threats, threats against kids. Do you think the Justice Department is doing enough to go after the individuals behind these threats against election workers and public officials? Uh, you know, I can't speak to, you know, whether they're doing enough in, in every particular case. Uh, I can't tell you, you know, as an elected official, that so many of us are getting those kind of threats, and we're getting them all the time, and they seem to be uh, increasing in intensity. Uh, and it's just a danger, not only to the individuals who work within our democracy, but a, a danger to the democracy itself. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, um, Ms. Moss uh, and her mother, Ruby Freeman, uh, and these other officials could put a human face on what it means when the President of the United States comes down on you like a ton of bricks. Uh, and as I mentioned at the hearing, if he could do that to Ruby Freeman um, and, and Shea Moss, and he can do that to loyal members of his party, he can do it to anyone. Uh, and that ought to get people to sit up and take notice because anyone could be next. Your committee chairman, Benny Thompson, said if people who support Trump's election lies, the big lie, if they win key state government jobs, then in 2024, quote, we won't have close calls, we'll have a catastrophe. Uh, we saw what happened in New Mexico with a county official refusing to certify because of some deranged theory having to do with election software. Do you think the nation has, the public at large, have any idea what's coming down the pike here? Well, I don't know. Uh, part of what we're trying to do is to sound the alarm uh, that, you know, the system held, uh, but barely. And the lie that uh, put our system in jeopardy is still being used around the country uh, in ways like you just described in New Mexico uh, and, and elsewhere. And people are running for office on a platform of ignoring the actual election results 
uh, and just uh, doing anything, saying anything, adopting any lie necessary to support whoever they want to win. That's how a democracy comes to an end. Uh, and we need to wake up to that threat because we've had the good fortune to live in a democracy all our lives and this democracy is centuries old. Um, I think we've come to believe that somehow it is inevitable uh, and it's not. Um, we're going to have to really uh, stand up to protect it. Now, it's the American experiment. It's not the American proven theorem. Uh, Congressman Schiff, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. Coming up next, a new never-before-seen witness in the committee's investigation. The panel uses the words of the former top Trump campaign lawyer against Donald Trump. Stay with us. And welcome back to the lead in our continuing coverage of today's January 6th committee hearing. I'm Anderson Cooper, back with the team here uh, in Washington. Jeff Tubin, one of the things that interests you was which I think we hadn't heard before, that Ron Johnson, according to testimony, attempted to give uh, Pence the, some fake electors. Absolutely. Well, the whole subject of fake electors was a big part of the uh, Arizona um, section of the hearings today. And, and also, I think it's so valuable to hear people talk about these things. You know, we've all heard the term fake electors, but I mean, the whole thing was so bizarre when you think about it. You know, fake electors are a government-assigned position. And people just declaring themselves electors for the president of the United States. I mean, what gall? I mean, you're going to declare yourself a United States well, senator? It's crazy. And, and, I it's, mean, it's, it's, it's a crazy and, and plan. But let me, let me just finish about Ron Johnson. So it comes to January 6th, and um, Pence is presiding, and... Um, there is email traffic that was shown in the hearing where a, uh, John, a Senator Johnson's aide says he wants to give the fake electors to Pence. Now, subsequently, uh, Johnson has thrown his aide under the bus and said, no, 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 I knew nothing about this. I expect there's probably more to know about this than, uh, than that. But just the idea that uh, Trump's forces had the, um, the moxie, the gall, the outrageous... And, well, and it was ridiculous. Think about declaring yourself an elector. It's nuts. What about the woman who said they wanted me to hide out in the state house overnight? all night? <laughs> she said, no, "Was it Michigan? I don't remember." But it's like, yeah, Michigan. And what about Insane. the people who showed up at the door, yeah. the state house, and said, "No, no, no, we, we, you should let us in. We're really the electors." It's just like presenting a false diploma or whatever. But Brad, it was Brad it was Raffensperger. Not. I want to play something that he said. He basically kind of went through the litany of lies that were told about what happened in Georgia. Let's let's just watch it. The numbers don't lie. We had many allegations and we investigated every single one of them. In fact, I challenged my team. Did we miss anything? They said that there was over sixty six thousand underage voters. We found that there was actually zero. You can register to vote in Georgia when you're 17 and a half. You have to be 18 by election day. We checked that out, every single voter. They said that there was 2,423 non-registered voters. There was zero. What do you think, the, Chris, the power of today was? Well, I, I, I thought the personal testimony of Rusty Bowers and Brad Raffensperger and both Ruby Friedman and, and her daughter, Shea Moss, I mean, these were people who were caught in this crazy mixmaster of uh, a plot to overthrow the election and paid a tremendous price. And, and there's one thing I want to say. You, you mentioned in, when we were last talking, uh, Jeffrey, about the violence. And we did hear about violence. We did hear Rusty Bowers talk about people coming to his house on weekends when, and, and, and uh, a gravely ill daughter and 
accusing him of being a pedophile and all kinds of things. And Brad Raffensperger talking about his daughter-in-law. His son had died, so she's there without a husband and breaking into her house. And, you know, there are some people, and I think rightly so, who were losing their mind at the idea of these protests and the threat of violence for Supreme Court justices. I would hope that some of the people who were so upset about that would be just as upset about people who are enforcing the law as the Speaker of the Arizona House and the Secretary of State in Georgia or Shea Moss and say anybody that goes to their houses or threatens them, that it's just as contempt. Yeah, Ruby I- Freeman had to leave her house for two months. Right, right. Big, big I mean, before January 6th. It's yeah. not, you know, these are not people who have huge resources who it's not a big deal for or no. private it's, security. And, and Shea Moss, who said that her grandmother that they were coming to the house and, and attacking her. And she felt responsible for all of that, and you can understand that. But I think this was also all of these personal stories about how when the guardrails come off was also aimed at the Justice Department. The Justice Department, a lot of people on this committee believe, has been slow walking a lot of things. They have also prosecuted uh, over 800 people uh, because of January 6th. And if you look at these stories and you say, look at the harm Look at the harm that was done by the lies that Trump and his allies were peddling to decent, honest people trying to do their jobs. Look at the look at the result. And you can see it as as leading up to what happened to January 6th on the Capitol, which you have prosecuted a lot. So take a look at this Justice Department and understand how this went and how could you not prosecute? It also, George, wasn't just Ron Johnson. It was this representative, Andy Biggs, who does right. not come out as a profile in Courage today. Absolutely. I mean, he is trying to pressure Rusty Bowers to, to go along with all of this. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. It just didn't stop. They just were doing everything they could in every which direction, throwing things up just to see if they would stick. Even though Donald Trump, they repeatedly told him, you know, you're all wet. This is not true. And, and what, it, what it, it, Andy Biggs is on January 6th. Yeah. It's on the day of the certification. Yeah. And he's calling and up calling. Rusty Bauer and saying, hey, how about we decertify the Biden electors? You know, it reminds me of the last hearing where John Eastman, after they've had the riot, he says, well, look, since, you know, we've we've gone off the rails here a little bit. How about we just throw open the electors? But, but that was the, the attitude. That was the, the attitude. The power just of repetition is also something that is so meaningful here. I mean, the, the one story that has been told over and over again by the president is the, the suitcase of votes under the desk in Atlanta, that, you know, there was some corrupt element of this suitcase. And uh, if there's one thing people know, I'd say, about the Georgia vote count, they would they would remember that there was this mysterious suitcase of votes. Raffensperger explains it, that it was a sealed Gabe's. conventional box of votes that was um, just put there on the normal course of business. But because the president, former president and his allies continue to repeat that it was corrupt, it was in a, it was wrong, that they were all Biden votes somehow. That is a story that remains out there. But the power of repetition goes the other way as well. The power of repetition in these hearings to me is the repetition of the fact that all of these people kept telling Donald Trump and others around him, this is false. That is false. That is. If you stack all of that together, it's a long, long list of a lot of different people from Bill Barr to Raffensperger to Donahue, 
a lot of, and we're not even going to see the whole thing. There's probably piles of deposition more. And, and you think about if Donald Trump were ever tried, and he, if he ever decided to testify in his own defense, which I don't think he would be, it would be insane for him to subject himself to cross-examination. The cross-examination would be this repetition. And this one told you this, correct? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. And this one told you this, yes, yes or no? And if he says no, he looks like a liar, the liar that he is. If he says yes, he's admitting that he was willfully blind to these hundreds and hundreds of facts. We're going to take a quick break. Still ahead, a stunning new number from the January 6th committee. 30 witnesses invoking their Fifth Amendment rights while under oath. Our legal panel reacts next. Welcome back to the lead. A day of disturbing testimony, including hearing from members of Donald Trump's own political party testifying how they refused to do his bidding, believing it to be illegal. They refused to overturn Biden's victory, legitimate and legal, in their states, and how their lives were threatened at times because of that courage. Arizona's State House Speaker saying he flatly told Trump he would not break the law for him. Let's go to John King at the Magic Wall here. John, let's go through some of the highlights here when it comes to the pressure campaign that Trump and his allies and his supporters uh, put these people through. Detailed, shocking, disturbing, pick your word, testimony about corruptness, about efforts to create laws that don't exist, uh, and to fantasize about illegal votes that didn't exist. And the power of the story, as you noted, coming from the conservative Republican Arizona House Speaker, the conservative Republican Georgia Secretary of State, his deputy, a Republican, uh, Rusty Bauer, saying they told him thousands of illegal undocumented citizens voted. He said, show me the evidence. Uh, thousands of dead people voted. He said, show me the evidence. They never did. Uh, Brad Raffensperger going through the same thing again. Repeated calls, pressure from the White House chief of staff, do something, find it, fix it. Gabe Sterling, the one who said a month before January 6th, Mr. President, please stop. Someone's going to get killed. Please stop. Someone's going to get killed. Now, the threats are escalating. There's no evidence there. We keep looking. And so again, and then you look at the results. In Georgia, just shy of 12,000 votes. There was a count on Election Day. There was a recount. There was an audit. Then they investigated the fraud. The president had his day in court. Joe Biden won Georgia. It's simple fact. It is honest math. The same in Arizona. Uh, Joe Biden won a slightly smaller margin. But again, they counted. They recounted. There were court challenges. They investigated these different claims. You heard the Republican House Speaker saying they wanted me to call a special session. I don't have that authority. So what did you get at the end? Powerful testimony from Republicans that Donald Trump wanted us to cheat. We just couldn't. Do not want to be a winner by cheating. I will not play with laws I swore allegiance to. Our job, from our point of view, is to get the facts out, do our job, tell the truth, follow the Constitution, follow the law, and defend the institutions. And the institutions held. You know, we just followed the law and we followed the Constitution. And at the end of the day, President Trump came up short. But I had to be faithful to the Constitution. And that's what I swore I know to do. And Jake, that's what you heard repeatedly from these state officials saying, look, we were sympathetic to Donald Trump. We are Republicans. We kept looking. It wasn't there. We would not break our oaths. We would not break the law. And the committee says that's what they're trying to piece together, that Trump next hearing will be about the Justice Department. We heard about the fake electors today, the pressure on Mike Pence, so on and so forth. The committee's point is that Donald Trump kept being told no, kept being told the facts don't support your case. And he kept looking for people to help him cheat. Yeah. John King, thanks so much. So what we heard was corrupt. What we heard was immoral. What we heard was unethical. But was it illegal? That's what I want to know. Was any of this illegal? Let's talk to our panel right now. Um, Carrie Cordero, let me start with you, because 
we heard testimony from the Republican National Committee chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, that seemed to put Trump directly in the, the area of the conspirators when it came to this scheme of fraudulent electors. Mm-hmm. Uh, take a listen to the Republican National Committee chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel. He turned the call over to Mr. Eastman, who then proceeded to talk about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather these contingent electors in case any of the legal challenges um, that were ongoing changed the result of any of the dates. I think more just helping them reach out and, and assemble them. But the my understanding is the campaign did take the lead and we just were helping them in that in that role. So just to translate, she's saying there that Donald Trump, as president, turned the call over with Republican National Committee operatives to Mr. Eastman, and Eastman gave this scheme that was had no basis in the Constitution and may even have been illegal. Is that evidence of criminality? I think that it is. I mean, I think the committee has really brought out um, new pieces of evidence, and what they're doing is they're tying it together um, to present what could potentially be a case for conspiracy to defraud the United States, um, which is a a broad conspiracy. And I went back and I looked, Jake, at the U.S. manual, the DOJ manual that governs this. And there was one particular part that really stuck out to me today because it says that it is uh, illegal for for individuals to interfere with the lawful government functions by deceit, craft, or trickery. Trickery. And when I was listening to the testimony today and the evidence that was drawn out, it was that piece of it, that it was trickery, that it was means that were dishonest. When you think about Rusty Bowers' testimony, everything about his testimony was honesty. It was that he was there to uphold Arizona law, that he was there to uphold the Constitution. He came across as just such an incredibly credible and honest person doing his job and everything that the committee has presented that the Trump campaign was doing and that the lawyers who were working on behalf of the former president were doing was dishonest. And that's where I think they really um, bring the case around to the conspiracy part of it. What do you think? You know, what what these witnesses do is they eliminate Trump's ability to say, well, I didn't know what Rudy was doing. I didn't know what Eastman was doing. They were not acting at my direction. It's a bit like the mob boss's dilemma, right? You never want, the mob boss never wants to get personally involved because he wants to maintain that arm's length from the bad things that are happening. But the dilemma is if he doesn't get personally involved, things don't always happen the way he wants them to. In this case, it appears that Trump gave in. He couldn't help but get on the phone call to hand it over to Eastman. He couldn't help but get on the phone call to try to pressure Brad Raffensperger because he knew that it's his personal involvement would put the most pressure on those people, would convey his imprimatur of this is what I, the president, want you to do. And it's that sort of involvement that could get him in a lot of trouble down the road. And that's what Adam Schiff, the congressman who's on the committee who led some of the proceedings today, that's what he just referred to when I asked him about this. He said it's the imprimatur. It's the idea that Trump gets on the call with Raffensperger. Trump gets on the call with Ronna McDaniel. McDaniel, Trump gets on the call with Rusty Bowers to put his imprimatur, his stamp of approval. This is what I want. And you so you think it actually is potentially criminal. 
I think that the committee is really, really moving the case with each hearing towards that. I, I do. And uh, and I think that, you know, we have to really thank the Georgia officials. The country needs to thank the Georgia officials who uh, presumably recorded that call um, and the committee's effectiveness in going through today and going through the call piece by piece, line by line, so that people can hear the call and the pressure that was just constantly placed in the context of everything else that was going around, going on with respect to um, the plan to put the fake electors in in different states, the pressure that was being placed on other officials as right. well. Right, and there is actually a prosecution investigation right now, I think a grand jury That's investigation, right. going That's on right. in Fulton County in Georgia about that specific this phone call. Um, I want to play this call with, a, with a, the auditor in Georgia. Here is Trump talking to her. That was also played today. You know, it's just you have the most important job in the country right now because if we win Georgia, first of all, if we win, you're going to have two wins. You're not, they're not going to win right now. You know, they're down because the people of Georgia are so angry at what happened to me. They know I won. Won by hundreds of thousands of votes. It wasn't close. Now, there's no world in which it's appropriate for a president to be having that phone call with the auditor of Georgia. But is that illegal? And have you heard any of the the things that Trump has said to Raffensperger or to the auditor or to others that sound enough like a threat. Um, it's one, it's, you talked about mobsters, and, uh, and Rusty Bowers referred to the, the book, the, the Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, which is a Jimmy Breslin novel about incompetent mobsters. But there really is the same kind of like, oh, it's a nice business you have here. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it, tone to a lot of these conversations. Plain and simple, it's coercion. Right. He gets on that call and he says to this woman, this auditor who spent her life working for the state of Georgia, never, ever, ever imagined she would be uh, talking to a president of the United States. And he starts out by saying to her, you have the most important job in the country right now. It's like the setup for the pressure. Right. So now she gets off that call feeling the full weight of the presidency of the United States on everything that she's doing. And it's absolutely clear from the call what the result that he wants her to reach. Is it specifically criminal? I'm not sure. Uh, the, the DOJ would have to do a little bit more work on that one. But is it coercion? There's no question it's coercion, and it's absolutely inappropriate. Yeah. Coming up next, John Dean and Carl Bernstein are going to share their takes on today's hearing through the prism of Watergate. Back in a moment. Welcome back to The Lead. A cancer. That is how January 6th committee member Congressman Adam Schiff described Donald Trump's election lies. It also echoes perhaps the most famous line from the Watergate hearings about a cancer growing on the presidency. We have uh, with us right now the man who said those words, former Nixon White House counsel John Dean, also with us, veteran journalist Carl Bernstein, who is reporting with Bob Woodward, of course, uncovered the Watergate uh, scandal I want to play something that Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bauer said during his very moving testimony today. Let's play that. And I said, look, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. And I also swore to the Constitution and the laws of the state of Arizona. And this is totally foreign as an idea or a theory to me, and I would never do anything of such magnitude without deep consultation with qualified attorneys. You are asking me to do something against my oath, and I will not break my oath. Carl Bernstein, let me ask you something. 
Was that a John Dean moment, do you think? I don't think we're there yet. It was a moment of great integrity. It was a moment at which we see, in fact, what Liz Cheney said in her closing statement. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. She said that's all the herb. To the Republicans uh, and, and who have not gone along with this investigation and tried to shut it down and try to ignore it. What we're watching in this hearing is not just, we haven't just had an attack on democracy. What this hearing is, is about is the future of democracy. And there's a lot riding on it, and it's not at all evident uh, that this is going to turn out well, that Republicans are going to do the right thing, as happened in the Watergate hearings and afterwards when John Dean testified. Because, and in Watergate, there was overwhelming evidence overwhelming evidence of the president's criminality and how massive a conspiracy it was. This conspiracy, we know from these hearings, is every bit as massive as as Watergate was. Whether or not the president of the United States, whether you can prove intent, whether Merrick Garland has enough to go on to indict a president, former president, we don't know that yet. But the nature of the conspiracy, constitutional criminality, Criminality in the laws of the country, a conspiracy to defraud the American people. It is there. And if Republicans can't do what happened in Watergate, the Republicans are the people who pushed Richard Nixon from office. We have no evidence whatsoever that Republicans in Congress are going to respond to this and they're going to be indeed where Liz Cheney said they are. So, uh, John Dean, you were the White House counsel during Nixon, and right now Trump's White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, uh, is, as far as we know, not willing to testify. We heard a vice chair of the committee, Liz Cheney, make a, basically a public plea for Pat Cipollone, uh, your successor, uh, a few generations removed, as White House counsel. Um, what do you make of all that? I think we need a Pat Cipollone moment. I truly do. Uh, Here's somebody who has, to my knowledge, sworn oath and allegiance to the Constitution at least three times. He certainly did when he took the job of White House counsel. He did when he was admitted to the bar twice under Illinois and District of Columbia. He has sworn to support the Constitution. We know from case law now that a California judge looked at all the evidence surrounding this and has found one lawyer has no attorney-client privilege protected by uh, by the norms of the practice mm-hmm. because they're criminal activity. I think, in other words, a lawyer just because he has attorney-client privilege, if the client was committing a, 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 was breaking the law, there's no attorney-client privilege anymore. That is correct. Okay, that is correct. And in this situation, Pat Cipollone does not represent Donald Trump either. Uh, he represents the office of the president. And I think he really has a duty to come forward to protect democracy. He's sworn an oath to the Constitution. Exercise it, Pat. Yeah, and well, let me ask you, if you're Pat Cipollone, what do you do now that Liz Cheney has called you out so publicly? I think, I think there's no question. Pat, come forward. Don't hide. Uh, we need you. We need democracy needs you. So please, come forward. And, and one of the arguments Liz Cheney is making is that the American people have a right to hear. And from testimony, we've heard Cipollone was trying to get Trump to not do 
this unconstitutional, potentially illegal scheme. In fact, there's a whole history of Cipollone in the White House trying to stop Trump from any number of schemes uh, that border on the illegal or were illegal. Through the whole presidency, he's done that. And the committee has testimony from people around Cipollone. They know largely what Cipollone has said and done. What the committee wants to do is get him out there where the people of the country and Republicans in Congress can hear it and put those Republicans in Congress on the spot, as well as show the people of this country, as happened in the, quote, John Dean moment, what it sounds like, what it looked like on the inside. You can't get that from the assistant to Pat Cipollone. You need Cipollone in there. I don't like the word theater, but you need him in there for the drama of what occurred here. And what occurred here is dramatic in a way that the country needs to know about it and can't withstand if the country doesn't know. So in Watergate, you came forward, uh, and then a number of other um, Republican senators, including Barry Goldwater, you told that great story on my show last week, and and others, uh, went to Nixon and basically said, the jig is up, it's over. Does that exist today in the, today's Republican Party? Not likely. It, it, what's happened, Jake, in my reading of the party, is Trump has made it okay for the authoritarian personalities of the Republican Party to be authoritarian personalities. And they're not going to come forward. They're people who are not, it just is not their instinct, it is not their inclination. So it's not going to happen. Can we John say Dean for a minute and, and, that they're craven? They're craven. Indeed, indeed, yeah. that's the problem. They know what's going on. They don't even like Trump, most of them. Carl Bernstein and John Dean, an honor to have you both here. Thank you so much. Still ahead, more in our politics lead. A man sentenced for January 6th connected crimes refuses to certify election results in New Mexico. That's right. He's also an election official. I'll talk to the state's top election official. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, one hour, 14 minutes, eight seconds. That's how long police officers stood outside the Uvalde classroom with the gunman inside as 19 children and two teachers were killed. The horrific testimony about the police response that is being called a, quote, abject failure. Plus, it's going to be a problem for President Biden. That's what a top State Department official says as Russia claims it could execute the two American fighters who went missing in Ukraine. And leading this hour, the January 6th Select Committee has wrapped up its fourth public hearing this month. The big takeaway, Trump not only never stopped claiming that there was election fraud in Arizona and Georgia, that there was not, but he continued to put pressure on election officials to overturn the legal legitimate results, even when they could not provide any evidence of fraud. At some point, did uh, one of them uh, make a comment that... uh They didn't have evidence, but they had a lot of theories. That was Mr. Giuliani. He said, we've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence. And I don't know if that was a gaffe, or maybe he he didn't think through what he said. I said, what would you have me do? And he said, "Uh, just do it and let the court sort it out. But Rusty Bowers, the Arizona Speaker of the House, and other election officials were not just facing pressure from the Trump team. Many also endured harassment, and in some cases, actual violence from people in their own states who believed Trump's election lies. Listen listen to this tape from the Michigan Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. 45 minutes later, we started to hear the noises outside. 
my home and that's I, my stomach sunk and I thought it's me and they're and, and then it's just we don't know what's gonna I mean the uncertainty of that was what was the fear like are they coming with guns are they gonna attack my house I'm in here with my kid you know it's I'm trying to put him to bed and so it was um that was the scariest moment, just not knowing what was going to happen. We also heard from a former Georgia election worker, Wandrea Shea Moss. She and her mother, Ruby Friedman, were the targets of Trump's lies, specifically lies about them. The former president accused them falsely of moving suitcases of ballots on election night. Moss described the toll this has taken on her. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. It's affected my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. For me doing my job, same thing I've been doing forever. But despite facing terrifying threats of violence from Trump supporters, CNN's Pamela Brown reports, those state and local officials refused to upend democracy. They refused to do Trump's bidding. You are asking me to do something against my oath, and I will not break my oath. Rusty Bowers, the Republican House Speaker in Arizona, offering powerful testimony about the pressure he faced from former President Trump and his legal team to decertify Arizona's legitimate election results showing Joe Biden as the winner. He said, uh, just do it and let the court sort it out. And I said, you're asking me to do something that's never been done in history, the history of the United States. No, sir. He said, well, that's my suggestion would be just just do it and let the courts uh, figure it all out. Bowers also telling the committee Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani acknowledged they didn't have any proof of fraud. He said... We've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence. Bowers remaining steadfast in the face of a constant barrage of calls. Mr. Speaker, this is Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis. We're calling you together because we'd like to discuss, obviously, the election. Hello, Mr. Speaker. Uh, This is Jenna Ellis, and I'm here with Mayor uh, Giuliani. Hey, Brian, it's Rudy. I really have something important to call to your attention. I think really changes things. Bowers even disputing a claim Trump made about him shortly before the hearing. Anywhere, anyone, anytime has said that I said the election was rigged, that would not be true. The committee revealing how Trump aligned members of Congress, like Arizona Republican Andy Biggs, urged Bowers to throw out Biden electors, and detailing how Trump's election lies inspired many of his supporters around the country. Some supporters even threatening election workers. We started to hear the noises outside my home and that's my stomach sunk. And I thought it's me. That was the scariest moment, just not knowing what was going to happen. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere. It's affected my life in in a major way. Every way. The committee used Trump's own words to make its case, playing audio of an hour-long phone call he made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. 
which is one more that we have. Raffensperger, who was Republican, insisted Georgia's election results were accurate. Every single allegation we checked, we ran down the rabbit trail to make sure that our numbers were accurate. Trump's top two officials in the Justice Department also testifying. We didn't see any evidence of, of uh, fraud in, in, the, in the Fulton County episode. The major allegations are not supported by the evidence developed. State officials are already investigating Trump's pressure campaign in Georgia, and that call specifically for any criminal wrongdoing. That is a case that we are investigating. I named the crimes that I thought could be impacted. Um, and if there is ever a crime and it is ongoing, we are going to look at everything. And looking ahead to Thursday's hearing, that's going to focus on Trump's pressure campaign against the Justice Department and former top DOJ officials in the Trump administration who resisted that pressure campaign. They are expected to testify. Now, the committee wants Trump's former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, to testify as well. You heard Vice Chair Liz Cheney talk about that today, saying that the American people deserve to hear from him. A person I spoke with close to Pat Cipollone says that he is resisting those calls as of now and that he believes he is sufficiently cooperated with the committee, meeting with them uh, in an interview behind closed doors with the permission of Trump and the Biden White House. Jake? All right, Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Joining us now live to discuss is Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida. She serves on the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. So let's start with what Pamela Brown just reported, the the committee's uh, appeal for testimony from former White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Um, How close are you? Do you think he will agree to testify? I think it's important that he testifies. He was there providing the president with legal advice as he um, embarked upon this uh, effort to try to overturn the 2020 election and stay in power. As we've heard from other uh, witnesses, uh, he, the president was receiving advice uh, that uh, indicated to him that what he was uh, trying to do was not legal, was not ethical, uh, was unconstitutional, and yet he pr- pushed forward anyways. So I think it's very important that we hear from Mr. Cipollini. But do you think he's going to testify? Is it going to happen? I, you know what? It's Washington, and I hate to crystal ball anything. One of the most emotional parts of the hearing uh, was when two longtime Georgia election workers testified the, about the horrifying threats they received after being targeted and terrorized by Trump and his minions. They say their lives and identities were changed permanently. Take a listen. I wore a shirt that proudly proclaimed that I was and I am Lady Ruby. Actually, I had that shirt on. I had that shirt in every color. I wore that shirt on Election Day 2020. I haven't worn it since and I'll never wear it again. (laughs) Now I won't even introduce myself by my name anymore. I get nervous when I bump into someone I know in the grocery store who says my name. I'm worried about who's listening. I get nervous when I have to give my name for food orders. I'm always concerned of who's around me. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people, starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay. 
to push their own lies about how the presidential election was stolen. There are a number of House Republicans from your home state of Florida who are all in on this election lie, on the big lie. Do you think that that incredibly disturbing, distressing testimony will have any impact on them? You know, what I found very powerful about the hearing was that there was testimony from elected officials, uh, the uh, House Speaker in Arizona to the um, Secretary of State in Georgia, to average ordinary citizens who so valued their power to vote that they made a career out of helping other people vote. And yet three generations of that family have been terrorized by the rhetoric that the president irresponsibly used to drum up um, uh, violence towards them. It really was a heartbreaking um, hearing. Whether or not anybody in uh, Florida on the Republican side um, has that touched their conscience and changed their mind and their path is, is for them to decide between them and their God. There was a, a moment of potential legal significance, a number of them actually, but, but one in particular, I think. I want to play this moment from Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel's deposition with the committee. She acknowledges in this testimony that Trump himself was directly involved in the scheme involving fake electors, sending a slate of fake electors to Congress and to the National Archives. Take a listen. He turned the call over to Mr. Eastman, who then proceeded to talk about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather these contingent electors in case any of the legal challenges um, that were ongoing changed the result of any of the dates, I think more just helping them reach out and, and assemble them. But the, my understanding is the campaign did take the lead and we just were helping them in that, in that role. What was the significance of that? And do you think it's legally significant for Donald Trump? It is unprecedented for a president to organize alternate electors that do not reflect the will of the American people or the voters in any one of those states that he organized those electors in. And I think it's quite telling that the Trump campaign lawyers distanced themselves from it. They, when they heard that this was the path forward, they either left or said, hey, that's, that's on you if you all are going to um, execute on what is clearly illegal. Um, I think, you know, it's a real problem that the president used his power uh, and tried to subvert our uh, democratic process in the way that he did. Democratic Congresswoman, member of the January 6th House Select Committee, Stephanie Murphy of Florida, thanks so much to you. Coming up next, the Secretary of State of New Mexico, another state where fake electors met and tried to overturn the 2020 elections. How distrust in results is playing out in the midterms in New Mexico right now. We'll talk to her. Plus, abject failure. A top law enforcement official in Texas calls out the police response to the Uvalde school massacre. The officers had weapons. The children had none. The officers had body armor. The children had none. What new images and a timeline reveal and the crucial three minutes that could have saved lives. And we're back with more on the January 6th hearings where committee members laid out the details of Trump's fake electors scheme. With me to discuss is New Mexico's Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. New Mexico is one of those states that Trump targeted in his fake elector scheme. Uh, Madam Secretary of State, thanks for joining us. So in your state just two weeks ago, a county commissioner and the county commission 
refused to certify primary results. Uh, the chairman of the January 6th committee, Benny Thompson, talked about this commission in his opening remarks earlier today. Take a listen. Two of the three members of the commission finally relented. One still refused, saying his vote, quote, isn't based on any evidence. It's not based on any facts. It's only based on my gut feeling and my own intuition, and that's all I need. By the way, a few months ago, this county commissioner was found guilty of illegally entering the Capitol grounds on January 6th. That's really obviously no way to run elections based on feelings as opposed to numbers. Are elections on shaky grounds in New Mexico? I think elections are on shaky ground everywhere. And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing a through thread coming from the 2020 general election, what happened on January 6th, um, the lies, the big lie, especially, and the mis and disinformation that have been spread and continue to propagate uh, throughout a, a particular uh, part of our our electorate, um, you know, it's really starting to take root and starting to affect uh, even groups like this county commission who, you know, while they have a very narrow uh, focus, a very narrow statutory authority with regard to elections is looking to do whatever they can to impede our election process. And I think it's something we all need to be deeply concerned about. And just to be clear, the, this this guy's feelings were based on his uh, belief, I guess, in the conspiracy theories having to do with Dominion software, ones that are completely without any merit at all. And it's just so odd how they never, ever talk about um, Dominion voting uh, when it has to do with electing Republicans. It's only when a Democrat does well uh, that they start talking to this, th- these individuals. They start talking about uh, fraud and Dominion software and the like. Well, you you know, Jake, it's even worse because in this particular case, in this particular county in New Mexico, had they followed through with their threats, uh, had they not certified the election results, one of the very commissioners, uh, a Republican down in that county who was on the ballot for re-election this year, would have completely erased his name from the general election ballot. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's gotten to the point where it's not even political anymore. It's completely nonsensical. Um, and it's just about obstructing the election process at any cost. And, and clearly, uh, you know, disenfranchising thousands of voters in that county, ensuring that many candidates, even Republican candidates who were on the ballot down there, didn't make it on the general election ballot is is a cost that they were, they were willing to, to, to take. Yeah. So there's disenfranchisement. There's these delusions and these lies. And there's also intimidation. There was an emotional moment from the former Georgia elections worker who testified today. She talked about how she wished she had never become an elections worker because of what she's had to endure. We also heard from your counterpart in Michigan and talking about threats to her outside her house. What happens to our democracy if good people, Democrats, Republicans, independents, are scared to run for office or to be elections workers? I mean, this is the challenge. Uh, you know, we, we are all under threat and we are all under attack. Um, and my heart just absolutely goes out to my colleagues, whether they be chief state election officials or just folks who are are working on the front lines of our democracy of, of, of all parties. Um, 
you know, what happens is, you know, this is exactly, I think, what's being intended is a complete and utter breakdown of our democracy. Um, I think we are on the brink here in this country. And I, I you know, I, I'm reluctant to say such things. You know, I'm not a very hyperbolic person, but the reality is I think that's where we are. Uh, and I think it's very scary. And I think every single citizen of this country, every single voter should be taking this extremely seriously and doing everything we can in our power as citizens of this country uh, to keep this from going over the cliff. Secretary of State uh, Maggie Toulouse Oliver, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up next, the troubling response from Russia when asked if two captured Americans would be spared the death penalty. Stay with us. Turning to our world lead now, the State Department has confirmed a second American has been killed in combat in Ukraine. 52-year-old Stephen Zabaliski's obituary says he died in mid-May and was a volunteer fighting in southern Ukraine. This comes as a Kremlin spokesperson says the Geneva Convention, which sets out how soldiers and civilians are to be treated in wartime, does not apply, they say, to the two captured American fighters being held by Russian-backed separatists. And as CNN's Kylie Atwood reports, the families of more than a dozen detained Americans are demanding a face-to-face meeting with President Biden. A dire new threat from Russia to the lives of two Americans captured in Ukraine. The Kremlin spokesperson claiming Alexander Druki and Andy Wynn are soldiers of fortune and not protected by the rules governing prisoners of war. Dmitry Peskov saying this when asked if they would be spared the death sentence. No, I cannot guarantee anything. It depends on the investigation. Their families tell CNN both men were fighting in the Ukrainian army. Andy and Alex are not mercenaries. They are not soldiers of fortune. They are a part of the Ukrainian military. They are, they are a part of the military, meaning that they are prisoners of war and they should be treated as such under the Geneva Convention. We have both publicly as well as uh, privately called on the Russian government and its proxies to live up to their international obligations uh, in their treatment of all individuals, including those uh, captured fighting in Ukraine. One American still wrongfully detained in Russian prison is WNBA star Brittany Griner. This week, her wife, Sherelle Griner, expressed deep frustration with the Biden administration after Brittany unsuccessfully tried to call her 11 times on their anniversary on Saturday. The call had been planned for almost two weeks, she said. Quote, I find it unacceptable and I have zero trust in our government right now. If I can't trust you to catch a Saturday call outside of business hours, how can I trust you to actually be negotiating on my wife's behalf to come home? Because that's a much bigger ask than to catch a Saturday call, Sherelle told the Associated Press. State Department spokesperson Ned Price expressed regret and said the call has been rescheduled. It was uh, a mistake. Today, in an open letter to the president, the families of more than a dozen Americans wrongfully detained around the world are demanding a face-to-face with the commander-in-chief. Mr. President, we need you. We need your clear leadership to prioritize the expeditious resolution of these cases, they wrote, in describing themselves as exhausted, traumatized, and beleaguered. And the family of Matthew Heath, who's being held in Venezuela, voiced dire concerns after he tried to take his own life this week, now urgently asking the White House to act before it's too late. We do not think he is out of the woods. Uh, This particular suicide attempt was not successful, thank goodness. We have every confidence that he will try again. 
Now, tomorrow, Jake's Secretary of State Tony Blinken is going to have a virtual conversation with the families of Americans wrongfully detained abroad and American hostages abroad, we're told by a senior State Department official. And we know that Matthew Heath's family is going to be one of the families on that phone call. That's according uh, to what his aunt told CNN. It'll be interesting to see how this call goes down, just given all of these circumstances that have happened over the last few days and weeks. And of course, they are pressing to speak with President Biden not the Secretary of State. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thanks so much. Today, a top State Department official saying diplomatic relations with Russia will, quote, absolutely no, not go back to the status quo as Russians express frustration in their own way. CNN's Fred Plaikin meets a 76-year-old artist who wants Russia to repent for what Putin calls a special military operation. Yelena Osipova might seem a bit frail, but her will is strong and her creativity seems unstoppable. The 76-year-old artist has been detained for several anti-war protests since Russia began what it calls its special military operation in Ukraine. But when we visited her in her apartment in St. Petersburg, she showed no signs of feeling intimidated, instead complaining that police had taken her posters. They took some away and haven't given them back, although they promised to give them back to me, she says. This has been going on for some time. So she keeps painting more posters, like this one, a bird symbolizing Russia with the writing, Russia is mourning and Russia is not Putin. It's a repentant bird, she says, a bird in mourning. And there are many such people in mourning here. Yelena Osipova is not afraid to speak out about even the most difficult topics, like the massacre in Bucha, where hundreds of dead bodies were found in the Kiev suburb after Russian forces retreated from there in early April. Ukraine and international investigators have launched investigations into possible war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Moscow continues to reject its forces were responsible. The very large poster shows dead people with huge, piercing, open eyes, and the text says the eyes of the dead will remain open until Russia repents. For me, what was important in this poster is this word, repentance, she says. It was important to me to emphasize it. While some Russians took to the streets to protest Vladimir Putin's special military operation during its early days, authorities have now effectively stopped any larger movement from taking hold, dismantling opposition groups and banning many media organizations not in line with the Kremlin's policies. Yelena Osipova says she understands people's fears. They are afraid of losing their jobs, she says, being expelled from college. And there have been such incidents, even if they see a photo on the Internet showing someone holding a Ukrainian flag. That is already grounds for sacking. But Yelena Osipova isn't scared, she says. If the authorities keep taking her protest art, she'll paint more. And even a battalion of riot police won't silence her creative mind. And Jake, just to give you an idea about the strength of character that we're talking about here, Yelena Osipova, she told me that she's not just thinking of possible new posters to draw, she's also thinking of repainting some of the ones that have been taken away by the authorities. Now, of course, all this uh, is very taxing at 76 years of age, but she says that as long as she's capable, she's going to continue to go out there and voice her dissent. Jake? 
All right, Fred Pleitkin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. It was a, quote, abject failure by police. The more details that emerge about the Uvalde school shooting, the more horrific the police response appears to be. Stay with us. It took 24 seconds for the Uvalde shooter to enter Robb Elementary School and start shooting. 24 seconds. It took police officers one hour, 14 minutes, and eight seconds to neutralize him. Now, in our national lead testimony today reveals the door to the classroom was unlocked the entire time. As new security footage shows, officers inside the school with long guns and ballistic shields while fourth graders and their teachers waited, according to the Texas Tribune. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Uvalde. It's a community reeling from grief, failed by the very people whose job it is to protect them. Three minutes would have made a difference. They'd have been dead. Today, stunning new criticism of the police response in the Uvalde mass shooting. Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there was sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. Shown in this surveillance footage image obtained by the Austin American Statesman, showing 19 minutes after the gunman entered the school, three officers, two with rifles and one with a ballistic shield. Depicting in full color the 77 minutes of horror children and teachers endured, according to the latest Texas Department of Public Safety timeline. At 11.33 a.m., within 24 seconds of entering Robb Elementary, the gunmen started shooting. Just three minutes later, 11 officers also entered, two with rifles. 19 minutes in, the first ballistic shield arrives. At 11.54 a.m., 21 minutes after the shooting began, there's questions about whether kids are still trapped inside. The law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure. The director of Texas Department of Public Safety, Stephen McCraw, passing judgment publicly before a Texas Senate special committee. One of the biggest failures, he said, waiting. And while they waited, the on-scene commander waited for radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. Despite earlier reports from the Texas Tribune that school district police chief Pete Arredondo tried dozens of keys that failed to work, McCraw today confirming the door to the classroom was unlocked. The preliminary investigation suggests not one officer even attempted to open the door until it was breached at 12.50. The officers had weapons. The children had none. The officers had body armor. The children had none. In addition, the Texas Tribune obtained this screen grab from a Robb Elementary School surveillance camera showing officers in the hallway at 12.04. According to documents obtained by the Texas Tribune, Chief Arredondo called at 11.40 a.m. saying, We have him in the room. He's got an AR-15. He's shot a lot. They need to be outside the building prepared because we don't have firepower right now. It's all pistol. The investigation, based on some 700 interviews, blames the police failure to intervene immediately squarely on Chief Pete Arredondo, who also testified today, but behind closed doors. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. 
We reached out to Arredondo's attorney and we have not heard back. But Arredondo has told the Texas Tribune in the past that he did not consider himself the incident commander. Now, Jake, senators asked McCraw today if there was something in Texas law, perhaps under the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement, which is the regulatory agency for peace officers here in the state of Texas, there was something to hold officers accountable. And McGraw's answer was no. Of course not. Rosa Flores, thanks so much. Let's discuss all this with Terrence Gaynor, former U.S. Capitol Police Chief and CNN law enforcement analyst. Uh, Chief Gaynor, as we heard in Rosa's report, there were, there were enough officers with enough guns and equipment to neutralize the shooter within three minutes. Is there any way uh, that Chief Arredondo could ultimately be held partially responsible for, for this massive loss of life? Well, Jake, I certainly think he's morally responsible. And there's plenty of statutes at most city, state, county, or federal levels about official misconduct. The failure to do what you're supposed to do, which then results in a loss of life, should be considered. So we'll just have to see what the Texas law is and see if there's a federal violation of civil rights by his failure to do something. Chief Arredondo, you know, over the last, go ahead. I was just going to say, over the last year or so, we've talked a lot about officers' duty to intervene when there's misconduct. There's an equal obligation to intervene when there's a failure to act. Chief Arredondo testified before a closed-door committee today. Um, What questions would you want him to answer? Well, the disparity between what he has said earlier and what he's saying now, and somehow try to explain himself. If there's a way to do that, the man ought to be speak up. When you mess up, you speak up and take responsibility of what you did so that we can all learn how to be better. And I think he keeps the way this information leaks out like this or is dripped out in his failure to act just keeps putting a dagger in the hearts of each one of these parents where they have to relive what happened to their children and their spouses uh, of of the teachers by someone's failure to act. It's patently unfair, immoral. It is a terrible failure. Yeah, let's let's not forget that in the, the initial reaction by police and by public officials down there in Texas uh, was to praise how heroic the police were when it se- seems the response was the exact opposite. We also learned uh, that the door to the classroom where the carnage was unfolding was unlocked and that a simple test of, of the handle could have changed everything. Are officers normally trained to, to try a door handle before waiting for a key? They should have been exploring all options. You know, we've talked a little bit about this before. There were probably a few brief seconds, maybe a minute, when the decision they were trying to figure out, was this an active shooter or was it a hostage situation? Now, I'm not defending what he didn't do, but while you're trying to figure out whether it is a hostage situation, you're supposed to have a plan to take action once the shooting starts again. And we have plenty of information now that there was ongoing shooting over a, a great period of time when the issue about whether this was an, uh, a hostage situation where you didn't want to do something to put more kids at harm. But when you add in the telephone calls from the children in there, the telephone calls from the teachers, the spouse, the things officers should have been doing while they are outside that door, even if they were at risk, that's their duty. Our job as police officers not to come home safely at night. We have to do our best on that. Our job is to make sure those who were responsible for protecting that they come home. 
someone failed dramatically, not just that commander in the scene, but some of those officers, they have to explain why they didn't take some action when it was clear, based on what we know now, they should have. All right, Chief Terry Gaynor, thank you so much for your perspective today. We appreciate it. COVID vaccines are now available for children five years and younger, but Pfizer, Moderna, we'll get an expert opinion. Stay with us. Our health aid now, COVID shots and little arms. Vaccinations for kids younger than five are now available across the United States. A short while ago, President Biden and the First Lady visited a clinic offering some of the first vaccinations to young kids. As the White House marks this major milestone in the nation's fight against COVID, I want to bring in Dr. Paul Offit. He's on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Great Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Offit, good to see you. Parents now have a choice between the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines for their little ones. If they choose Pfizer, it's a three-dose series for babies as young as six months up to four years old. If they prefer Moderna, kids six months to five years will get a two-dose series. What would you say to parents whose children are eligible for both vaccines? Which do you recommend? I say get get whichever one you can. I mean, both vaccines are highly likely to protect against serious illness for against a virus that can cause serious illness. I think what many parents don't realize is that this virus can hurt young children. Over the past two years, 45,000 children less than five years of age have been hospitalized. About 10,000 of those children have had to go to the intensive care unit and more than 400 have died. So this is a disease worth preventing. Both of those vaccines work. Although I do predict actually that the Moderna vaccine probably by the end of the year will also be a three-dose vaccine. I think in the end, both will be three-dose vaccines in this era where the Omicron subvariants are common. What would you say to a mom or dad or caregiver who asks about potential side effects from the shot? Right. So so the good news is we have a lot of information on, on this vaccine. I mean, there's millions of five to 11 year olds who've already been vaccinated and billions of people who've been vaccinated with these mRNA vaccines. These vaccines can cause fatigue. They can cause fever, rarely high fever. But those are the side effects or symptoms that are associated with an immune response. When your body makes an immune response, you make the kind of proteins that cause those symptoms. That's why this vaccine works so well. So, so no real serious long-term side effects are, are possible for a kid that gets a vaccine? I, th- I think the one you worry about, at least one I worry about, is myocarditis, this inflammation of the heart muscle. You definitely saw that in the 16 to 17-year-old group where that, that side effect was as, as uh, common as one in 5,000. Although, remember, the virus also does that at a much more common rate. It was reassuring to know that for the 12 to 15-year-old, that was much less likely. And for the 5 to 11-year-old, it was much, much less likely. So I think that um, for this less than 5-year-old um, also, I think you can feel confident that you're much more likely to suffer myocarditis if you're infected with this virus than if you get a vaccine. And the ones who got my- myocarditis, it was treatable, right? It, it wasn't... There was no long-term effects? Exactly. Well, it's, it's really a short-lived, temporary, self-resolving phenomenon. In many ways, you don't even need treatment. It just goes away on its own. A recent poll shows that just 18% of parents are planning to vaccinate their kids right away. 38% say they want to wait and see. 11% will only do it if required. 27% say they're definitely uh, not going to have their children vaccinated. Uh, what do you say to parents who are reluctant, who are hesitant? 
that they should get this vaccine. I mean, it's, it's not surprising. If you look, we've had a vaccine for the 12 to 15 year old available for a year, but only 60% or so have gotten it. We've had a vaccine available for six months plus for the uh, five to 11 year old, but only 30% have gotten it. So I'm not surprised. I think people tend to see their children as, as those at, at an age where they're not going to be seriously infected, but that's wrong. I mean, the data show that if you work in a hospital, you would know that's wrong. So please vaccinate your child. We heard the Surgeon General today say another booster might be necessary for adults in the fall. You're on the Vaccine Advisory Committee. What do you think? Let's see the data. I mean, we are going to be presented those data on June 28th. I think the the administration is interested in a bivalent vaccine, meaning a a vaccine that contains both the so-called ancestral strain that we're getting now, plus an Omicron strain. If there's clear evidence that that's a value, then we'll recommend it. But if there's not, we won't. Dr. Paul Offit, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Word of a U.S. airman arrested in connection with an insider attack in Syria. More from the Pentagon coming up. In our world lead, the U.S. Air Force says an airman has been arrested in connection with an insider attack at a U.S. base in northern Syria. CNN reported earlier this month that the military was investigating whether an American service member deliberately set off explosives on Green Village Base back in April. Four U.S. service members were wounded with traumatic brain injuries in that attack. The Pentagon is not disclosing any other details at this time, including possible charges. The Biden administration maintains around 900 troops in Syria, including special operations forces. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. You can listen to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to join me and Anderson Cooper tonight for 8 p.m. Eastern special coverage of the January 6th hearings. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you at 8. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.